You did. I heard uh, something went along with that song. Uh, it tells us how the world really operates. There was a Washington politician, and he stepped off the, cor- the curb and got hit by a bus. Went up to the pearly gates, and Peter said, Well, we're not really sure about you. We're going to let you spend 24 hours in heaven and 24 hours in hell, and then you're going to vote where you want to stay. said, well, I, I know I want to be here. No, we got our rules. You got you to do it. He said, Okay, well, we'll do heaven first. So he's up there in heaven, you know, and he walked through, you know, it, it was pretty good, some good normal home cooking and, you know, a nice little cottage and, you know, the streets were gold, so that was good, you know, not a whole lot of excitement. And so he said, okay, so he went down to hell and uh, they sit him down on this big elevator. When the elevator opened, they were all his friends on a golf course, dressed to the tee. I mean, they were, they were drinking and smoking and carrying on playing golf and talking about how lucky they were that they'd cheated people out of all that money on earth, what fools they were and all that. He spent time down there, and then before he knew it, the time was up, he went back up, and Peter said, well, you got to vote. What do you want to do? He said, well, he said, I never thought I'd say this, but I vote for hell. And so they put him on the elevator. He got down, the doors open, and there's a wasteland. Trash everywhere. His friends are dressed in rags. He can tell they're just thirsting to death. It's so hot. He looks and he's dressed in, in rags and he steps off and the devil hands him bags and start picking up the trash, buddy. I mean, it's just falling from the sky, just the grossest stuff you can think. He said, I don't understand what happened. I was here yesterday. He said, well, yesterday we were campaigning and today you voted. <laughs> That's that long black train, buddy. Hey, Elizabeth, they thought that one was funny. She tells me I'm not funny, so. And I'm not. Let's open our Bibles in the Old Testament to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 9. Ezekiel, chapter 9. Now, there's 11 verses, and we're going to read all 11 verses so you get the, the flavor of the passage. But our text is going to be, is going to start uh, with verse 9 through 11. Really, verse 8 through 11. Let's start with Ezekiel 9, verse 1. Then he called out of my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge of the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces the north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and a rider's inkhorn. At his side, and they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. This is in the temple. Now the glory of God, the God of Israel, had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the rider's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark On the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. This guy's a scribe. He's got inkhorn. He makes a mark on God's true people. The ones who repent of their sin. In the sin of their nation. To the others he said in my hearing. Go after him through the city and kill Do not let your eyes spare nor have pity. Utterly slay the old, the young, the maidens, the little children, the women. But do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. They're to start in the temple. 
with God's people. So they began with the elders who were before them in the temple. Then he said to them, Defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And they went out and killed in the city. In other words, they leave the dead bodies, which was never supposed to be in the temple, in the temple. So it was that while they were killing them, I was left alone. I fell on my face and I cried out and said, Oh, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? Notice God's response. Then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of bloodshed and the city is full of perversity. For they say the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. And as for me also my eye will neither spare nor will I have pity. But I will recompense their deeds on their own head. And then, just then, the man clothed with linen who had the ink on at his side reported back and said, I have done as you have commanded me. Let's pray. Father, we come to this passage of scripture and I ask that you would illuminate our hearts and minds to understand your word, that your Holy Spirit will cast out those things that would keep us from hearing from you today. Give us spiritual minds to understand, spiritual ears to hear, and spiritual hearts to obey you. And we'll glorify your name in this place because you alone are worthy of our praise. We thank you for Jesus who saved us from our sins. And I pray especially for those sitting without the sound of my voice that have not accepted Christ publicly as their personal Lord and Savior, that you would convict them even this hour about what they need to do. These things I pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Now let's just say one day we're up in heaven. We're strolling around. And we meet a fellow named Ezekiel. And Ezekiel asks us a question. He said, what do you think of my book? Now our response could be, uh, uh, what book? We haven't read it. Or it could be, well, you know, Zeke, that didn't really apply for me. It wasn't my cup of tea. It wasn't in my wheelhouse. Uh, It's a little hard to understand. All that stuff you wrote in there was a little strange. And so, no, I didn't like your book. And he would just look at us. You see, we may use the same excuses and say, well, I didn't like it. You know, uh, uh, it's hard to understand, Brother Gary. But you see, God will teach us. Because you need to understand, Ezekiel is part of our Bible, God's holy word. And he's given us the Holy Spirit to understand it. I think that we need to keep something in mind, though. And it's theologians call it the concept of the inviability of Jerusalem. That is I-N-V-I-ability. Inviability of Jerusalem. You say, what in the world are you talking about? Here's... What most Jews in Ezekiel's day believed, the inviability of Jerusalem. The prophets that God had sent to turn the people back in repentance had told them that Jerusalem was God's city. Everybody say amen. That because Jerusalem was God's city and his footstool, the temple was there, where his presence would reside before the people, that God would bless Jerusalem. Not only that, but that one day, God's own son, God's Messiah, God's specially anointed, would visit Jerusalem. They took that doctrine and they perverted it to say this. Because God loves Jerusalem. Because God loves his temple. Because God loves his people. Jerusalem will not be destroyed. And they perverted that to say it didn't matter what they did or how they lived. 
that God, because his temple was there and his city was there, he would never destroy Jerusalem. But he did. Not one block was left upon another in the temple or the city. So what's the point? The point is this. We must repent when God offers us the chance. We must repent when God offers us the chance. You see, I think our culture, our day, says the same kinds of things that the Israelites said. We're a strong nation. We're mighty people. Well, God's with us. And yet, we don't think judgment's coming because it's always been the same. Doesn't matter what we do. We're a Christian nation. And somehow we equate the United States with Christianity and nothing can be further from the truth. Let me make it real plain. If God would judge his beloved city, his holy temple, and his chosen nation, he will judge us. So we better repent when we get the chance. So two or three things about this that that I think that we're in the same boat they were is this. We as a people are blood guilty. That's point number one. We as a people are blood guilty. Now... In verse 9, it specifically says this. He said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel, of Judah, is exceedingly great, and the land is full of bloodshed. Bloodshed, yes. You see, in Jerusalem, by the time that Ezekiel was receiving this message, they let things sort of slide. Some of the world had creeped in. They were doing things that God forbade in Leviticus 20, verses 2 and 3, when it says, Don't offer your children to Molech. In other words, your children ought to be offered as a sacrifice. God never wanted that. He He forbade it. But some of them were obviously doing that. You see, the thought crept in like this. It wasn't just all at once. It was crept in. Well, maybe it's not so bad. I mean, that was a long time ago. I mean, that don't really apply to our day. You know, if it doesn't bother the parents, why should it bother me? And, you know, they can't afford to feed them anyway, so it just makes it easier on me. My taxes are less. Rather than remembering the shock and the horror of parents that would actually sacrifice their children to a false god. Hmm. Well... As recently as 2012, there was a picture on the internet that went viral. I assume that means, from what the younger folks tell me, it went everywhere. It was a picture of a Chinese woman laying beside her dead seven-month-old baby. That's an awful picture. Yeah, it was. Because, see, in China, the law says you can have one child. Her and her husband had broken the law. And she was pregnant with the second child. And at seven months pregnant, they made her abort that baby. And it died. And that picture went everywhere. Except the mainstream media of the United States of America. What, 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 what happened? See, there, wasn't a, there were a few that condemned it. But even worldwide, most of them just said, hmm, you know, we don't see that as a horrific situation. 
You see, I mean, how can we condemn that when in the United States we've aborted over 60 million babies? Now, did that grab you? 60 million. As a people, we're guilty of blood. Well, Brother Gary, I haven't done that. And da, 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 da. Now, listen to me. <laughs> you vote for those people who believe in abortion, and you send them to Washington, and you're not responsible. Give me a break. You don't want to help those? You know, I had some guy tell me the other day, and he got sort of mad at me when I told him he didn't know what he's talking about. He said, well, you Christians, you Christians, you don't want them to have abortion, but you don't want to help feed them. I said, you're crazy. He said, Christians do more to feed kids than anybody else in the United States. Specifically, I said, you liberals. He didn't like that tag either. You see, there are thousands of Christian homes that can't have children that are waiting for adoption. There are thousands of Christian organizations that will help feed kids. But you see, abortion in America is no longer about, and I want you to hear me, it's no longer about, well, it's a case of rape or incest. It's no longer about, well, the baby is horribly deformed or mentally impaired or something like that. That's less than one half of 1% of all abortions in the United States. Abortion in America is about money. Okay? And I talked to a woman who'd had some abortions that we just use it for birth control. Now, this is before she became a Christian. And now she's repented and she tries to tell everybody, don't do that. You see, we need to understand that we're not pharisaically judging these folks. If you've had an abortion, uh, the blood of Christ can forgive you of even that. And you don't have to carry that if you'll come and ask him to forgive you of that. So I'm not pharisaically saying, oh, that's terrible. But I am saying as a people, we are guilty of blood. I mean, come on. We have more violence and shootings in our country than anywhere else in the world. We have assisted suicide. Okay. There's just blood everywhere. Ah, Now, preacher, that was a long time ago, and those don't really, you know, if it doesn't affect me, it's no big deal. It affects the land because the land cries out to God and says they are guilty of blood. And so we need to be involved politically. Not that that's the answer, but it it should slow the process down. And we need to be involved in praying that that, uh, Roe versus Wade someday will be overturned. You say, well, now it's a woman's right to choose. Give me a break. You had a choice before you got pregnant. After you get pregnant, raise that child. But you see, we don't even understand what Roe versus Wade means. Roe versus Wade was put there for one reason, money. They have a multi-billion dollar industry in abortions and what they make out of those babies, the face creams. Be careful, ladies, when you rub collagen, make sure it's not human collagen that gets rid of those wrinkles because that's, that's an aborted fetus that's creaming your face. Ooh, didn't that feel good? You ladies didn't like that? See, all Roe versus Wade did was take it away from the states. Where our state, Arkansas, can't decide, well, after so many days, you can't have one. Roe versus Wade, all it did was take it out of the states and say there's no limits on what you can do. That's what Roe versus Wade did. 
Before that, it was a state's decision. If you had to go to another state that agreed with it, go to another state. But the Christians in this state or that state could decide, we're not going to do that here. That's what Roe versus Wade did. Why is it so quiet in here? The truth does hurt me. You see, I think we need to not be judging, but we need to be offering hurting people the hope of Jesus and the help of the church. That's what will change our nation. So, as a people, we're blood guilty. The second point. As a people, (laughs) we are perverse. As a people, we're perverse. Some of y'all don't like me saying that. Again, look at verse 9. He said, The iniquity of the house of Israel is Judah is exceedingly great, and the land is full of bloodshed, and the city full of what? Perversity. You see... The iniquity of the people is exceedingly great. Iniquity means tangled, and it's the word for sin that always means it's so convoluted that it, it is we've, we've twisted God's original purpose beyond imagining. Perversity means it's stretched to the point that you can't get a clear picture. Isn't that what our media has done and, and uh, the lesbian and gay and transgender and all that movement's done? They've tried to make everything that used to be a crime Normal. We're looking at it through a different lens and everything is sort of. That's the word for perverse. And it means not just at the first layer, but it means all the way through. We would say it like this. Rotten to the core. Well, Brother Gary, I don't don't like you saying that about me. Well, you see, most Bible scholars think that these people here in Jerusalem were practicing the same sins as Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? And you see, Sodom and Gomorrah was known as a sensuous cesspool of sex and violence in the ancient world. It was famous that you could do anything in Sodom and Gomorrah. Isn't that what they say about Las Vegas? What, stay, what happens in Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas. Isn't that in the United States? Doesn't our government now allow casinos and gambling in almost every state and we pour upon the very poorest of the poor because rather than pay a bill or rather than have a house or rather than have good food, they'll buy a lottery ticket and they buy more than rich people or medium income people ever thought about buying. But what's wrong with that? You can't. Eat, but you buy a lottery ticket. And the government is selling you that ticket. You don't see a problem with that? Is that not perverse? Yes. If you voted for that here in Arkansas, I hope God keeps you up tonight. I really do. You need to repent. Shouldn't be this quiet. But think about it, they're, they're doing the very things that God judged Sodom and Gomorrah for. They're renowned for evil. But what about our day? Okay, let's, let's click them off. You ready? Come on, it doesn't matter if you're ready or not, we're going to do it. Many people believe in many forms of marriage, any form of marriage, except the biblical standard for marriage, which is one woman and one man for life. And we're saying, oh, they should just be allowed to be happy. They're in love. 
No, they're sick in sin. The Bible never says anything except one woman and one man. We're going to do some more study on that later if God allows me to in February about what makes a biblical marriage and a home because I think I've been remiss in my duties in preaching that and so we're going to correct that situation. But you think about it. Many believe in multiple marriages, multiple marriage partners. They believe that they want complete freedom in their sexual choice and sexual identities. Give me a break. You believe that nonsense? I want to tell you something. The Bible is our standard, not society and not the Supreme Court. Somebody says, well, I I identify as as a man and it's a woman. Or I identify as a woman and it's a man. Now listen, what would you do to me if I come up and say, I identify with Napoleon Bonaparte. And I expect you to call me sir and bow. And I want an army. And I demand it now because that's how I identify. You would put me on the sixth floor of Baxter Regional Hospital. Somebody wants me there now. Amen. You see, until just recently, folks that had those gender confusion ideas, it was labeled as a mental illness. Until the 60s, homosexuality was labeled as a mental illness. But because we've been so preached to and so bombarded by all the publicity of these things, we've just sort of let it creep in until it's become the norm. And our kids, our kids, are you hearing me? Our kids are so hammered with it, they don't see anything wrong with it. They're confused when we talk to them about it. We as a society have become a perverse people. (laughs) Billy Graham said it this way. He wrote a book called My Heart Aches for America. And when... His wife, Ruth Graham Bell, read the rough draft of it. She said, Billy, if God doesn't judge America, he owes an apology to Sodom and Gomorrah. These people were full of sin, perversity. You see, sexual sin is a big deal. We sin against our own bodies when we do that. That's what the Bible teaches us. Against God, the other person. Sex in the context of a man and woman in marriage is a beautiful thing. There's nothing wrong with it. But anything else is is taboo. And too many people accept as normal, as I said, what 10 years ago was illegal. Too many people are, are claiming to be Christians and they're running around saying, well, let them have a choice. Let them have a choice. And God's word said, there is no choice. It's my way or no way. Judgment is coming. Our God is a holy God still. He has given us grace. He's overlooked it. He's given us mercy. You see, the biggest indictment of the church of Jesus Christ in America today is this. All the religious polls that we've done of Christian church members find hardly any difference between their beliefs and society's beliefs. Can you imagine? You should say no so that I don't think you're thinking like that. They find hardly any difference in the views on sex. They find hardly any difference in the views on marriage. They find any difference on on the views of whether it's right or wrong because we've got this relativism in America that says whatever's right for me is right. It might not be right for you, but it's right for me, so it's okay. 
We're confused. We're perverse. The things that used to be right are now called wrong. The things that used to be called wrong are now called right. And we proclaim it from the nation's capital, from the highest court in the land, that it's okay. God didn't say it was okay. He said, this nation is full of perversity. And if he judged them, we have no hope except repentance as a nation. We should be praying for revival. We should be praying for God to change hearts. The best news is, is that our young people have more of a hunger for the Bible than they've had in the last 20 years, according to the latest polls. Better be praying so things will change. The last thing I see here is this. We as a people have rejected God and His authority. We as a people have rejected God and his authority. Verse 9 again. For they say, the Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. As for me also, my eye will neither spare nor will I have pity, but I will recompense their deeds on their own head. For they say, the Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. Let me give you a translation in our modern English. God is irrelevant if he exists at all. They didn't want the prophets to stand up and proclaim the truth. They didn't want that in the public sphere. They didn't want that because it would interfere with what they were doing. My goodness. Don't tell me Ezekiel doesn't apply to today. You see, they refuse to see God's handiwork in their midst. They refuse to see God's blessings. They refuse to acknowledge his protection. They didn't want anything to be under his authority or listen to his word or anything about obedience. If that is not America today, you tell me what it is. Some of y'all squirming. You don't like this message. I'm anti-American. No. Mm-mm. Man, I'm anti-sin. How about that? You should be too because you're a Christian. See, we want to say God doesn't exist. We want him out of the public square. We don't want anything to do with him. We want him out of the schools. Our historians have tried to erase the beginning of our country where Christians founded it and say, oh, they weren't Christians. But when you read the original documents, they mention God and Jesus in the Bible quite regularly. It was founded on Christian principles in the Bible. And they said, if we ever leave these, this experiment in democracy will not work. Guess what? It's not working. Guess why? We've left our moorings. Our elected officials Coo to us about, now, just settle down. The local states will be able to handle it. No, they're not. The Supreme Court takes it away. (laughs) You see, our highest judges have tried to say, no, 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 we don't have to do that. I want you to understand something. Our God will not be ignored. Our God still is powerful. Our God will still judge. And no nation can stand before his fury. So what does that mean to us today? I want to close with this if you're taking notes. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 
verses 13 and 14. Watch. Stand fast in the faith. Be brave. Be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. In the midst of a people who have these problems, the Bible is very clear. Our responsibility. It's our day to live for Christ wholeheartedly is the first thing. It's our day to live for Christ wholeheartedly. No mealy mouth around. Yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I have problems. But guess what? God is with me and you need to know Jesus. We need to live for Jesus. The second point. Stand on our biblical convictions. This is the word of God. It is not outdated. It is alive. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides the very thoughts and intents of the heart. Okay? It cuts asunder where God can lay us open and see it. It's time to hold our biblical convictions. Now I'm going to shock you. You don't have any if you're not reading the Word of God. If you don't have a daily time to read and to study and to grow, you don't have convictions. The biggest problem we have right now in America is biblical ignorance. Why do people believe the things they, they, they believe? Because they don't know what the Bible says. And some of them don't care. Live your biblical convictions. But when I say that, I want you to hear the third one. Tell others the truth in love. Even those who reject our God and our views deserve to be treated with respect and loved as people made in the image of God. Don't go out in a hypocritical, pharisaical way and beat them over the head and expect them to like you. You tell them the truth as you minister to them and earn the right to be heard. And as they can't reject the love you show, they'll accept the God you know. They will for me also. Anybody I can argue into the kingdom, somebody else can argue out of the kingdom. But when they're captured by the love of Christ through ministry, through words, through deeds, they'll never leave. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Maybe God is calling you to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior publicly this morning. Maybe you need to repent of some sins and rededicate your life and heart to Him. Maybe you need to come and pray for the nation and pray for those that are your neighbors, those that God has put in your life that that you're supposed to show Christ to. And they need to accept Christ and you need to be that witness. Maybe there's other callings you need to do, but you need to come and only God knows what you need, but you know you need it. And you need to come to the altar and get that straight right now. Join this church by baptism letter statement. Accept Christ. Rededicate. I don't know, but God does, and you do. I'm going to pray. Then we're going to stand, and you come. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for this time with your word. Oh, how it convicts me, Lord. Lord, how it convicts us as a people. Lord, we want to be your people. We want to stand for what's right. So let us make the decisions that will honor and glorify Christ right now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.